the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, follow us, danprofshow.com. That is where you can get podcasts of the program, as well as uh, you can also get podcasts on Spotify and iTunes. On uh, social media, at Dan Proft Show on Twitter, Facebook, also at Dan Proft on Twitter, and then at Proft Dan on Instagram or everywhere. And we uh, begin the show tonight talking about uh, the reopening of the economy and some macro numbers that came in this morning, 48 percent GDP contraction in quarter one, which is more than some estimates, but significantly lower than a lot of estimates that I saw from some of the big banks. Many is suggesting as high as an 11 percent contraction. Still not a good number, but relatively speaking, personal consumption down seven and a half percent. That's not good either, but it could be worse. And in quarter two, we know it's going to be worse. So we're uh, not uh, flattening the curve quite yet here as we stand on April 29th. But you do have some states reopening. Commerce is beginning. And Mitch McConnell spoke with Neil Cavuto on Fox Business yesterday about a step he would like to see Congress take to provide a glide path to those businesses that are reopening to make sure they can be fully energized in the operation of their business and not have to worry about new threats to their businesses viability like trial lawyers. Well, let me make it perfectly clear. The Senate is not interested in in passing a bill that does not have liability protection. Uh, So that's an integral part of our economy getting back. Yeah. So to protect employers from endless litigation over anybody that may come back to work and get sick, get infected with the virus, no matter what protocols you take, even if you follow the federal guidelines, if you do temperature checks and you have hand sanitizer and you wear masks and so on and so forth, somebody still gets sick and they look to the employer uh, as uh, the deep pockets to sue, which is what plaintiff's attorneys are already signaling they will do, absent some federal indemnification of businesses. Again, and I think you can craft it such that you know, you're not going to incentivize reckless disregard, but employers have no incentive to have reckless disregard for the health of their employees, you know, because that's bad for business. Same thing with businesses vis-a-vis their customers, bad for business to have sick customers or sick employees. So it seems like it'd be easy enough to align the interests and, uh, and and run counter to the interests of trial lawyers who aren't interested in economic growth. That's for sure. They're, you know, generally parasites. Uh, in addition to that, you had President Trump yesterday during a review of uh, some of the impacts of the payroll protection program, forgivable loan program, suggest what he'd like to see next in terms of incentivizing economic growth as people are starting to get back to work in some states. Well, I like the idea of payroll tax cuts. I've liked that from the beginning. That was the thing that I really uh, would 
love to see happen. A lot of economists would agree with me. A lot of uh, people agree with me. And I think, frankly, it's simple. It's not the big distribution, and it would really uh, be an incentive for people to come back to work. Rather than doing another round of checks, either direct deposits or checks through the mail, provide at least a temporary payroll tax relief. For more on all of the above, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Scott Shalady. Scott, the cow guy Shalady, Fox Business regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, glad to be here. The uh, markets reacted fairly positively to what would otherwise be particularly glum news. I guess, you know, it's an expectations game. How did you receive the uh, GDP and consumption numbers and and react to some of what McConnell and Trump are suggesting should be next? I'm writing a piece about it as we speak. And once again, it's just facts over feelings. Right now, feelings are state of play when it comes to the stock market because everybody's been so cooped up. They're excited to get out. We're going to be starting the economy again. And all of those headlines make you feel better. Um, and then you got the headlines behind it about how these businesses are going to have to make us feel safer. Now, I'll argue the fact that America's been a very safe place anyway. And as the viral and medical evidence comes to the forefront here, it's looking more and more like this COVID-19 thing is being walked back down to something more closer to the flu than anything else. So that being said, these businesses, in order to survive, are going to have to make us feel safer. So that's going to be masks. That's going to be six feet. You know, Americans are so afraid to go out. And here's my big problem. You're not going to be able to get back to pre-corona levels of revenue if you've got only a half full restaurant or you're having to serve people in the parking lot, right? right. I mean, so all of these measures that are going to be making us feel safer, kind of like TSA, by the way, because they don't really, they're not making us safer, they just make you feel safer, or the big concrete bollards out in front of all the big financial institutions, because they're useless when it comes to big time explosives as well. These things are just going to be addressing our feelings, but not the facts, and the facts are this. It's daunting. Now, you're right, that number that we got today for the GDP wasn't as bad as people thought it would be, but ultimately, they're predicting anywhere between a 20 to 40% reduction in GDP or, or, you know, so our growth will definitely come lower. And how do you get back to that when you can only fill your restaurant to 50% or you only can fill forever 21 to 50%? I mean, what are these people smoking? I mean, it's just not going to happen like that. But you have to get, you have to get over the, the psychosis of such a large percentage of the population that you're describing. And so the way to do that, right, ideally is gradually then quickly. Maybe it's a it's a walk and then it's a sprint and we can skip the jog as soon as people start to come back to work, start to go to restaurants that are at 25 percent or 50 percent capacity, see that nothing, the world, the sky is not falling, the world is not going to end. You can resume something approximating pre-pandemic life and then you could expedite the return to, you know, full force, if you will. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm addressing. I think it's not going to be a V-shaped recovery. It's impossible. First of all, with a rolling open, and second of all, with all the precautions that we're taking. Post 9-11, I had friends that were selling all of their high-rise flats, right, all their high-rise apartments. Nobody wanted to, thought anybody would want to live that high anymore. Nobody was going to be able to travel on an airplane anymore. Right. I mean, all those things, those were all the knee-jerks. And to a large degree, I see a lot of those things happening right now. And I get it. We're going to get over them. But the talk of getting back to normal that quickly is just – it's happy chat. I mean, it's just not going to happen. It's got to be at least a two-year ordeal because you're going to have six months at least of this make me feel better being six feet apart. And obviously in the rural places, it's going to happen probably quicker than anywhere else. But we're going to have to get over this mental psychosis that has been foisted upon us as a, as a psychosis mentally because it really wasn't ever the big boogeyman that they made it seem to be, but that's a whole other show. 
but right now that's the thing we're going to have to deal with financially, and it's going to take longer than people think. Thinking about externalities, right, you uh, you tinker with a $20 trillion economy, and uh, you uh, create problems that you didn't foresee. Imagine that, the central planners not having uh, secret knowledge. And so one of them we see playing out in real time is you wanted to prevent uh, the health systems from being overwhelmed, and now you're setting them up to be overwhelmed because you have doctors and nurses being furloughed, salaries being cut, layoffs happening because of everything you wouldn't allow hospitals to do during the uh, the, the high season for COVID-19, if you will. So you've actually weakened the healthcare system that you were by, quote unquote, protecting it. I wonder if you're seeing other things like that that we should be worried about that we're not thinking about now when it comes to the economic implications of these shutdowns. And particularly when you have a lot of big states with big economies on the East Coast and Illinois that are still in effective shutdown. Well, I mean, I I think it's going to take a year for New York to open. I mean, they're talking about having everybody's temperature taken before they come in. Everybody has to wear masks. What's that going to make everybody feel like with everybody wearing masks all the time? I mean, come on. I mean, at the the same time that we've shut the country down to try to save the the hospital staff and what's been happening over in in the medical world, we're also lowering the immunities of everybody that's been at home for eight weeks or or however long this takes. So you're going to have the doors open to the economy. And at the same time, we've depleted our hospital staff and people are just going to get sick from not COVID-19, but just other stuff, because there's been some pretty good evidence that's come out to say that America's immunities will have gone down over the last eight weeks. And that's something that also needs to be addressed. So we might see a rush because people are just sick, but not from COVID-19. So this was, in my mind, a disaster is probably too strong of a word, but boy, oh boy, do they hit that panic button and shut that economy down way too quickly. Um, and, and I know that you, you had to be seen to be doing something in hindsight 2020. So I'm, I, I really can't judge because nobody really knows what they would have done in that situation. But boy, by hitting that button, you can't go back now. You can't unring that bell. And part of me thinks that they're going to make this be the world's biggest boogeyman to help justify hitting that button because they can't let you think it was just a flu and having all the economic damage that's really going to happen. Uh, Mitch McConnell also pumped the brakes in that interview with Neil Cavuto that we referenced. He pumped the brakes on that while focusing on a legal protection for businesses from predatory trial lawyers. Does that make sense to you? Before we shut down the economies and, and we were all wondering what was going to be happening in the NBA and, and the NFL and baseball, my first initial reaction was the president should just come out and say, hey, if you want to go to the game, you can't, you can't sue anybody if you get sick. I mean, I think that the, taking the lawyers out of the situation is a good thing. So I like the idea of indemnification there. He is Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business Regular. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All righty. Take care. I want to be with you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show as we move from the public sector to the productive sector mitch mcconnell uh that interview with neil cavuto on uh tuesday had uh, this to say about uh, the prospect of any federal help for uh, states and localities. 
what form that could take, as he's previously suggested an openness to bankruptcy for states that can't meet their unfunded pension and health care liabilities. That was rejected by Governors Cuomo and Murphy and Pritzker. He suggested, well, you know, he's open minded to talking about it, but um, not without some demands of his being met. Well, we're certainly open to considering additional uh, assistance to state and local governments on top of what we've already uh, done in the CARES Act. Uh, it is important, however, to understand that many states have uh, systemic, longstanding uh, challenges, many of them with their pension fund, many of them from overspending. So what we're saying here is uh, we're not interested in rescuing uh, badly run states from the mistakes they've made completely unrelated to the coronavirus. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and as we met, talked about with Scott Shalady, his demand uh, must include to even have a conversation about state and local help is indemnification of businesses who reopen. But uh, that's certainly echoed by uh, Rick Scott, former Florida governor, now U.S. senator, part of McConnell's caucus, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal, American families make responsible budgetary decisions every day. Well-managed states like Florida have done it for years. It's time for New York, Illinois and California to do the same. Kevin Williamson writing in National Review. Some states are better prepared for this than others. Wyoming maintains a rainy day fund that's socked away in its funds equal to 109% of the state's annual government expenditures. Alaska has more than a half year's expenditures tucked away. North Dakota, 30%. New Mexico, 27%. Most states have a good deal less. Some have very little. New York, 3%. Pennsylvania, 1%. Kentucky, less than 3%. McConnell's home state. And Illinois, of course, comes in at 0.00, no doubt from spending all its money on Chicago-style avocado toast, writes Williamson. Something like that. He's not that far off. In addition, uh, you have Illinoisans, uh, me being one of them, taking the position of uh, a southern Illinois state senator named Jason Plummer, whose op-ed was posted at foxnews.com today. Coronavirus bailout, don't waste federal funds on my state's bankrupt system. There's uh, people in Illinois that don't want to encourage the bad behavior that led to Illinois being the worst governed state in American history either. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Andy Biggs. He is the resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, also with a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal specific to Illinois. But uh, you could certainly extrapolate it to other states that uh, have significant unfunded pension problems as well. Andy Biggs, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. So um, you uh, write that um, to the extent that Congress is willing to offer any assistance to states like Illinois or New Jersey or Kentucky or New York that have significant unfunded liabilities, there have to be significant uh, significant requirements in place about uh, restructuring their systems at the state level so we don't just uh, fund bad behavior. Sure. Yeah, the, the, the op-ed that I wrote comes not just from my work at the American Enterprise Institute, where you know I do focus on retirement and pension issues, but also the past three and a half years, I've been a member of the federal government's financial oversight board working on the bankruptcy in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico is 3 million people. It's, you know, it's effectively a good-sized state. And you know, that bankruptcy, uh, where like, the whole range of issues, pensions, debt, all sorts of spending, has been far, far more difficult to resolve than I had originally hoped it would be. So that makes me a little bit more open to the idea of federal assistance to try to get these pensions reformed 
because it, once they tip a state into bankruptcy, the, the state is going to face, face an economic crisis that can leak over to adjoining states. At that point, then you have the Federal Reserve or the federal government bailing them out. I'd prefer to do this in a more orderly way. The issue, though, as you, as you rightly point out, is that some states have been responsible with their pension funding. Other states have been irresponsible. And there's no reason that the Americans living in responsible states should be bailing out the irresponsible. I mean, Illinois obviously has made a request for $10 billion to bail out their funds. Kentucky's main state retirement system has only about two years of assets on hand. And yet there are other states that are in much better shape. So the idea is that any federal assistance to a pension fund can't be simply a bailout for the fund. What I would see it as is maybe transition financing to serious, strict reforms of these pensions, not just window dressing, but real reforms that mean you either have to run it right or you don't run it at all. Yeah, I mean, and you're going to have to drag him kicking and screaming, as Pritzker in Illinois has so indicated by saying not only does he reject bankruptcy outright, but he's going ahead with $261 million in raises for public sector employees in a state that has the largest per capita unfunded pension obligations in the country by a wide measure. That is his right as you know somebody elected by the people of Illinois, but it is not the obligation of Americans living in the under 49 states to subsidize that. So it is bankruptcy for a state, you know, legally it doesn't exist. There's no process by which a state can declare bankruptcy. But even simply just default or insolvency where they stop paying their debt, that would be, from an economic point of view, would, would be a real problem for the state. At the same time, though, you can't use, let that be used as leverage against the federal government to demand a bailout for a state which, to be frank, everyone knows has been irresponsible in pension funding for decades. You know, this is not somebody hit by a car walking down the street. Right. This is a perennial bad actor when it comes to pension funding, and there's just simply no reason this should be bailed out without condition. Right, and and, and we've seen uh, constructive bailouts just as in the public sector, just as we see in the private sector, uh, workarounds to revitalize a business that was moribund. Detroit, prior to the outbreak at least, after its uh, reorganization uh, half a dozen years ago, was starting to come back a bit. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, pre-China Hong Kong, but it was on the mend. Well, it's, you know, there, there are good stories and there's, you know, there's, you know, not so encouraging stories. I think Detroit has been a fairly encouraging story. Um, the, the Puerto Rico bankruptcy I've been involved with has, to be frank, not been encouraging to me at all. Um, so, you know, a lot of it depends on how the bankruptcy is set up what, you know, how fully local leadership embraces it. What's the problem in Puerto Rico from your well, perspective? Well, in, in Puerto Rico, the the issue is not simply the pensions were insolvent, or they were. I mean, they, they basically ran out of money, but the government as a whole was insolvent. And part of the problem there is going in, I had hoped that the elected officials on the island would really have internalized that the way they do business has to change, that you know, it, it, they have to be more efficient how they do these things, they have to re- reduce corruption, they have to improve their, their sort of governmental quality, um, they have to focus on the things the government needs to do, not on what they just want to do. By and large, it's, it's business as usual down there. But even if Illinois were to default on all the debt it owes, there are still huge unfunded liabilities in the pension system. And they've got to figure out how, how they address that. Because your constitution says you can't cut benefits, but you can't get blood from a stone if they don't have the money, they don't have the money. 
Um, so it gets to be a very complicated issue. Great point. And uh, the, the point about, uh, you know, you're not going to be safe from on high, but also you're not going to be financially, but also culturally, that the political culture has to change in a state like Illinois. Um, it's such an excellent point. Andrew Biggs, resident. That's the most important part. Yeah, thank you so much. Andrew Biggs, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Appreciate your time. I appreciate it. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, we have some positive news on the uh, antiviral disinfectant and vaccine front to report today. Uh, Gilead saying that uh, after previous clinical trials of remdesivir, were not promising. Now trials show improvement for COVID-19 patients, uh, Gilead scientists said today, and uh, with respect to uh, remdesivir. So there's that. Uh, Hong Kong researchers have developed a antiviral coating. This is a research at Hong Kong University, which could provide, they say, 90 days of significant protection against bacteria and viruses such as COVID-19. The coating called MAP-1 took 10 years to develop, can be sprayed on surfaces that are frequently used by the public, such as elevator buttons, handrails, and the like. According to researchers at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, they began the development of of this uh, spray, this disinfectant, effectively, after the SARS outbreak. And uh, and then this, out of Oxford, Oxford University Uh, saying that um, they are hopeful a coronavirus vaccine will be widely available by September. Sarah Gilbert, professor of vaccinology at the university, I have a high degree of confidence about the vaccine because it's technology I've used before. The experimental vaccine has reportedly worked protecting rhesus monkeys that were exposed to heavy quantities of COVID-19, and they're beginning uh, human trials while also enlisting uh, an Indian drug maker to start producing millions of the Oxford vaccines by next month, even before they've been proven to work on the optimistic perspective that they will be. Uh, But should we be optimistic about uh, these developments for more on answering that question? We're pleased to be joined by Henry Miller, Dr. Henry Miller, who is a physician and molecular biologist, also a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, and was a founding director uh, of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Dr. Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Delighted to be with you, Dan. Well, uh, let's start uh, with, you know, the most promising, uh, the most important area in terms of promise, and that's a vaccine. Um, What do you make of what is being reported out of Oxford? Well, we've had a lot of uh, happy talk about vaccines, about these optimistic predictions. And uh, the reality is that there's a very high ethical and regulatory bar for a vaccine that's going to be administered to hundreds of millions of healthy people, even to prevent uh, a a really awful pandemic uh, or the the continuation of an awful pandemic like this. So, uh, you know, if we look historically at uh, what the bar has been for vaccines, um, a good example is about a month ago, there was a kind of puff piece in the New York Times about the uh, reminiscing 
about the approval of the Salk vaccine in the yeah. mid-50s, um, ticker tape parades and, and so on, and how wonderful it was going to be. The same thing would happen when we had a coronavirus vaccine. Well, what the author of that didn't say or didn't know is that the Salk vaccine was tested in randomized controlled trials in 623,792 kids. So, uh, but if we look more recently uh, at vaccines, at the... Oh, well, and, and just just on the, the score of the polio vaccine, and that took how long to come to market? Oh, it was, it was years right. Uh, right. Of, of testing, years of testing. You don't do 623,000 kids in a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know, that's ancient history. But if you look more recently, uh, the first successful rotavirus vaccine, rotavirus causes gastroenteritis in, in infants, uh, that was tested on 72,000 healthy infants. And the first human papillomavirus vaccine, Gardasil, uh, on 24,000 patients, 24,000 subjects. And the newest shingles vaccine, Shingrix, on 29,000 subjects. So that gives you a flavor for what the, uh, what the bar is, what, what the uh, extent is to really judge safety and efficacy for modern vaccines. Well, and now, just, and just, to, just to, uh, to accentuate your point, really, uh, again, according to CBS News, the human trials right now with the uh, potential vaccine at, being developed at Oxford, 550 participants given the vaccine, another 550 receive a placebo. So they're in in the infancy of sort of sort of the human trials compared to the scale of testing you're talking about. And I actually want to pick it up uh, right there uh, when we come back and also get some of your recommendations about how perhaps we could develop a vaccine faster than the 12 to 18 months or uh, than other vaccines have been developed throughout the course of the last, say, 100 years. More with Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Dr. Henry Miller, physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute and founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology, talking about uh, the news of this uh, potential vaccine out of Oxford University. And uh, Dr. Miller was giving us some perspective on both scale of human trials that are required to bring a vaccine to market and uh, the duration of time it takes to scale that amount of human testing. Uh, Dr. Miller, I I mentioned you're talking about for previous vaccines, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tests. Uh, Oxford, according to CBS News reporting, is at the stage right now of 550 participants in a a human trial, uh, 550 getting the vaccine, 550 getting a placebo. Yeah. Now, so the question is, why do we need uh, thousands or tens of thousands of subjects? Uh, there, There are several reasons. One is clearly safety. Uh, there are uh, unusual or rare side effects that can occur <clears throat> with vaccines. 
So in the 1970s, we saw that with the swine flu vaccine, where uh, when uh, the test, when the vaccine had already been approved of some 45 million subjects who were immunized, there were about 450 incidents of a progressive paralysis called Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, that caused a number of deaths and permanent uh, disability to a number of people. So you, you need to have fairly large numbers in the testing phase in order to identify rare side effects. The other thing is, uh, especially if you're, um, doing, if you're doing vaccine testing at a time when the infection uh, that's in question is not widely uh, distributed, uh, you have to do a large number of subjects in order to get the statistical power necessary to show that it's effective. In other words, the way these tests are done is you give uh, one group the vaccine, another group gets placebo, and then you look at the statistical difference between the two groups to see whether it's effective or not. Uh, to take the obvious example, if if you're testing in a milieu or at a time when there aren't any infections, uh, you're not going to be able to demonstrate effectiveness. Uh, and uh, and so uh, the current testing needs to be done in places where uh, there is uh, infection present in order to show that difference. The other thing is that there are uh, now hundreds of clinical trials uh, planned or underway and uh, the investigators are going to be competing among themselves for subjects to volunteer for these clinical trials. So it, it's not a trivial thing. It's and, not really very straightforward. And so uh, when Oxford University hopes to have, if this proves effective, hopes to have vaccines widely available by September, is that at all realistic? I, I think that's a pipe dream. I don't see the how that's possible. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing is we don't know whether any vaccine is going to work for coronavirus, let alone which ones. You you make it's the point, just of, uh, sorry to interrupt, but you make the point, too, just to give people some perspective on this, because this is, you know, new territory for most of us. You make the, uh, the point in this piece that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal, only about 16 percent of, uh, of vaccine candidates that begin clinical trials are ultimately approved just to sort of temper our expectations about uh, all the the, uh, the the hurdles that must be cleared in order to be approved and and uh, and uh, introduced to the market. It, exactly. Uh, you know, for for more than 40, forty years, we've been trying to develop HIV/AIDS vaccines. Number have been developed, a number have been tested, none has worked. Uh, and the same for a universal flu vaccine. Uh, univ- a universal vaccine would be one that would be effective in many or even all known strains of flu so that we wouldn't have to be immunized every year as we do now. So, uh, you know, the the, uh, the nature of the virus uh, also gets a vote here uh, yeah. and, and might make uh, vaccine development very, very difficult or even impossible. If you were uh, advising uh, Dr. Hahn, the current FDA commissioner, what are some things that he can do in conjunction with the rest of the task force to uh, expedite uh, the investigation, ex- expedite essentially the pursuit of a vaccine, I guess? Well, there, there are a number of things. 
uh, and I enumerated these in my Wall Street Journal op-ed, um, the, and some of these are being done. So, for example, the FDA is already allowing developers to perform uh, some of the preclinical, the animal studies, at the same time as they're doing phase one clinical trials in humans. Phase one are tests in a small number of subjects uh, to look for the, the, the crudest measures of, of toxicity or uh, safety problems. Um, metabolic derangements, allergy, anaphylactic reactions, and so on. Uh, another is that uh, <clears throat> FDA should uh, collaborate with experienced vaccine developers and develop what we call a master protocol for streamlined vaccine development. And the trials in this master protocol or the, the plan for them should have an adaptive design so that if one vaccine candidate is found early on not to work, investigators could quickly move on to testing the next most promising one without delay, without <clears throat> doing an entirely new application from scratch. If some of these recommendations were taken in addition to what else, what else is being done at present, do you think that the 12 to 18 month period that has been widely bandied about, including by uh, Tony Fauci, is, is that more realistic to the potential uh, time frame for a vaccine? I, I think uh, I think that's unrealistic. Hmm. And what what Dr. Fauci said was that uh, the 12 to 18 months didn't mean that you would have a deployable vaccine. It meant that you would have one that was in testing and perhaps on its way to approval. That's actually what he said. He mm. clarified that. Mm. That's, a, that's an important distinction. I'm glad you clarified it for us. He's Dr. Henry Miller. He's a physician and molecular biologist, senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. And I'll tweet out his uh, Wall Street Journal piece, too, for more uh, background that, that uh, he was providing. Dr. Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. I appreciate your having me with you. Thank you, Dan. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, my mantra is the uh, doctors and the public health professionals will lead us back because they are the only ones on who can, I think, persuade those who are afraid beyond reason to reenter Western civilization. Uh, maybe the politicians will inadvertently help, particularly when they're morons like Bill de Blasio, the Sandinistan mayor of New York City who tweeted out, my message to the Jewish community and all communities is this simple. The time for warnings has passed. I've instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This is about stopping the disease and saving lives, period. Of course it is. Jewish community. Great response from a, a gentleman named Lawrence Lewitton. The Jewish community, which one? The modern Orthodox on the UWS, the reform altar cockers on the UES, the Syrian Jews of Bidwood, the Bakarians of Queens. Oh, wait, you mean the Sotmars of Williamsburg. Why don't you say so instead of flaming anti inflaming anti-Semitism, you imbecile? Yeah, that's about square. That about squares it. 
And and the threat of arrest too, calling a community out by a community as as, as uh, being monolithic and uh, threatening to put people in cuffs. That's the uh, tempered hand, the Solomonic wisdom of a Mayor de Blasio. Th- these are people that are getting high marks from their constituents. The longer it lasts, we'll see if uh, the more scrutiny the de Blasios and the Cuomos and the Murphys and the Pritzkers are under, the Whitmers, we'll see how they fare. Uh, there's uh, a New York City tailor. He's done saying shut down. He's been in business for 43 years and he's moving to save his business. And he doesn't care who knows it. You know how I know? Because he went on Neil Cavuto to talk about it. Elliot Rabin, who is a tailor and the owner of the clothing store in New York City, Peter Elliot Blue, had this to say about uh, opening and then getting a visit from the police. Yesterday, the gentleman, the police came at around 1230. We were open and they basically said, are you open? I said, yes, sir, my door is open. And then they said, are you serving? I said, well, if people walk in, I believe I believe in the United States where people have freedom to walk in and do whatever they want. So we have obeyed and posted every rule, every regulation. We give out free gloves, masks, hand sanitation stuff, the the whole thing. So I haven't had any pushback from any officials at all. The gentlemen that were here from the police force yesterday, the two officers, as they walked out, they gave you a nice smile, a thumbs up, and they walked away. Uh, and he uh, also had this to say about the business owners that watched him open up. You know, business owners on his uh, neighborhood watched him open up and want to know how it's going. How's it I going? can tell you now that uh, a lot of the local businesses have walked in here and said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm doing fine. And they all said to me, we're opening on Monday. Losing legitimacy, the uh, political class, particularly its worst examples like the de Blasios of the world, losing legitimacy. There's only so much that a free people will take. There's only so much good faith that can be extended. And we, when people see capriciousness doubled down upon the way that it's being doubled down upon by all of those politicians I mentioned, there's only so long they're going to stay. They're only so long they're going to stay quiet, much less closed. This is Dan Proft. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. I know Joe Biden thinks we need more economic intercourse in order to uh, right the ship post-COVID-19. Uh, as you can imagine, it uh, is spawning a lot of uh, memes and reaction because it's just a very uh, unusual way to describe commerce, I'd say. But I, I suppose when it's, you know, government directed as Joe Biden wants our economy to be, then it will feel like you're getting, you know, intercoursed. Uh, anyway, secondary effects. We're just starting to really talk about it. We've talked about it for weeks on this show. You know, that it's been lives versus lives. That's the discussion. The false binary that the left has presented as we're staying inside and saving lives. And anybody talking about the economic cost of these draconian shutdowns 
is choosing money over lives, when in point of fact, we know that's not true from reams of research uh, across a range of medically related issues connected to economic devastation, as, as well as being forced to shelter in place. Well, more is now presenting itself in terms of evidence to support those who were concerned about the secondary effects, about COVID deaths that are the result not of catching COVID, not of being infected with COVID, but the result of politicians saying any death is acceptable, unremarkable, except COVID-19. Those are the only deaths that we actually care about. The central planning to allocate health care resources. So we were worried about the healthcare system being overwhelmed, and that's why we did these guidelines, shelter-in-place orders to flatten the curve so as to not to overburden the healthcare system. The result of overextending that policy is now furloughs, layoffs, a healthcare system that is less vital than it was pre-COVID-19, not because it was overwhelmed or in most places outside of New York and New Jersey, even close to overwhelmed but because of self-inflicted damage done by central planners who said everything is COVID-19 to the exclusion of everything else for a period of time. Not only are people not getting procedures, people who could get procedures are afraid to get those procedures because they've been made afraid to uh, go to a hospital. Secondary effects. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jackie Daly. She's a senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, former counsel to the chairman of the U.S. House Subcommittee on the Constitution and host of the Jackie Daly Show on The Blaze. She has written on the topic. Jackie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you. Uh, good to be with you and uh, enjoyed your piece uh, at RealClearPolitics.com, what a prolonged shutdown will cost in human life. Uh, and you start uh, right there with uh, Ezekiel Emanuel and uh, his acolytes who want America to be shut down for twelve to the next 12 to 18 months until we have a vaccine. Right. And, you know, Zeke Emanuel proposed as a as an advisor to Joe Biden. And remember, this guy was the, you know, Obamacare architect or one of them. So he's seriously influential. He proposed that we shut this country down for between 12 and 18 months. He really said that. And we're only one month in. So I couldn't take it anymore. And I thought someone has to point out what would ultimately happen, not just to the economy, which would be devastating. I mean, we can't recover, you know, not at least not for a decade, probably, but just in the cost of human life. So, I mean, the government's not there to rescue us and save our lives. It's actually there to preserve freedom. But let's just be on their territory and pretend like the only thing that matters is the government trying to sustain human life, because that's actually more of our responsibility than the government. Okay, I just went through and took, you know, suicide deaths, deaths from missed cancer diagnoses and domestic violence deaths and attempted to quantify what would happen if we locked down for that length of time. And I was kind of inspired to do this because at the end of March, pursuant to Texas orders, because I live in Dallas, I was notified that I could not get my annual mammogram or my annual OB-GYN visit for a cancer screening until further notice because of the lockdown. This is a women's health issue. It's an everyone's health issue. So I, I checked out how many cancers do we screen for in this country? And the answer is there are five. You know, breast cancer, cervical cancer, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, sometimes lung cancer, depending on your situation. And so I just quantified how many do we diagnose every year? And the answer is somewhere between 
half a million and a million cases are diagnosed in those cancers every year. Well, if we take Zika manual seriously, you're not going to be able to get screened for the next year. Those people would all be not diagnosed. They could, you know, have advanced disease or die by the time uh, they got treatment. And then for every 10% jump in unemployment, you get 30,000 suicides. Well, the Fed has projected a 30% jump in unemployment by June. That's 90,000 suicides, if history can be our guide. So I just felt like somebody had to speak up on behalf of these people, because no one was talking about them as far as I could tell. And, and with respect to uh, young people, too, I mean, we know uh, how rare is the incidence of COVID-19 illnesses, infections among uh, young, like under the age of 21, much less uh, right. death. And yet we have so many states that are still on lockdown, which includes, you know, young people can't play tennis. Young people can't go outside and shoot hoops. Young people can't do anything that is otherwise productive. And I thought this was crystallized nicely in terms of the choice before us with that incident in New Jersey where you had a couple of guys throwing a football around in a park and a New Jersey high school math teacher screaming at these boys saying, you're the problem. You're why we're on lockdown. You're why the virus is spreading. And I hope you get COVID-19 and die a terrible death. Which America do you want to live in? Do you want to live in boys playing in a park and and productive uh, youthful activities, knowing that they're uh, largely safe or the uh, hysteric anti-science mania of an actual adult, a teacher? Oh, you know, do you notice the common thread in the extreme lockdown crowd? They tend to be unhinged, unbalanced, and really have contempt, just full-out contempt for people, human beings, human lives that don't agree with them. So he thinks that their lives are less valuable than whoever contracted COVID-19 this week. And so the the anger and the hatefulness is kind of scary. You know what Um, else? yeah, you know what else here, too? And I, I'm not a psychiatrist, but Theodore Dalrymple is. And he wrote an excellent piece that hasn't gotten the play it should. It's just t- t- talking about this from a psychological perspective with these people that we're talking about, the unhinged and the fear mongering. Uh, it's fear versus frisson, fear versus the thrill of fear. And there are a lot of people, yeah. there are a lot of people that actually seek the thrill of fear because when there is yeah. no real fear. I mean, in other words, when there's nothing really to fear, they're seeking that thrill of fear because they haven't experienced anything that they've overcome. They're not part of the, the greatest generation that <laughs> defeated the Nazis. Uh, they didn't, we didn't have victory in, in Vietnam uh, that, they, that they could be proud of and be a part of, uh, 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 particularly from their perspective, even though, of course, we're proud of the service of, of our veterans it, it, always. But, but so this is, this is the th- getting the thrill of fear without having any real fear so that we defeated COVID-19. I'm a COVID-19 veteran. That's what this is. That's what all these war metaphors are about. It's the it's it's actually a psychological condition where you're thrill seeking, knowing there is no danger for self self-affirmation. It's putting yourself in the center of the story. Yes. Look at me. Yeah. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about what I overcame. Let me tell you about what I did. And, you know, you see the same thing. I remember. When I was in undergraduate school with young women, there were a lot of young women, um, and maybe men too, but I was mostly hanging out with girls, you know, and they, they're always 
seeking a painful experience that they can emote about and tell you about and be the center of attention and overcome their I'm like, do you really know what pain is? Because if you did, you'd want nothing to do with it. You know, <laughs> they tell you about these trivial things. And so that's a clear um Exactly. Need. That's exactly what I'm talking Being about. Yeah. Yeah. They, don't forget about me. I know we're all worried about uh, people in nursing homes that co- have COVID-19. Don't forget about me over here. Don't forget about how important <laughs> I am. Don't forget that I'm a hero, too. That's what it is. That's absolutely what it is. That is. I'm not saying it's everybody, and I'm not saying there, pe- there aren't people that are truly fearful and have been whipped into frenzy. And I'm not saying that there is no danger. I'm not saying any of those things. But there is a strain out there of the individual like that teacher in New Jersey that is exactly what you're talking about, exactly what Theodore Delriffle diagnosed. I mean, it's just that that's, there's just no other explanation for it. And actually, that's the best available one. She's Jackie Daly, senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, former counsel to the chairman of the U.S. House Subcommittee on the Constitution, and host of the Jackie Daly Show on The Blaze. Jackie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I've said on this show for some time that uh, a pandemic is not unprecedented. Uh, We've experienced them generationally uh, going back to the avian flu. Now, I know it wasn't the death total that we see from COVID-19. And I understand it's a novel virus. But go back to uh, 1968 mentioned earlier in the show, the 1968 flu pandemic that took 100,000 American lives in a country that was two-thirds the population it is today. Does anybody even know about that? Now, of course, it's against the backdrop of the Vietnam War. Why why are we comparing the death total to the Vietnam War, the D.C. press corps, versus the death total to the 1968 pandemic? Because nobody knows. Because the response to the pandemic is unprecedented. 1957 influenza. I know there's a lot of reference being made to the uh, Spanish flu at the end of World War I, 100 million people worldwide. Is that what we're looking at? So the pandemic is not unprecedented. A pandemic is not unprecedented. Even if uh, it's a new strain of a old category of virus, coronavirus. The um, response from the left is not unprecedented either. What's unprecedented is the general support for what the federal and state governments have done. That's what's unprecedented. And in part, probably because you have uh, a president who's a Republican with a, a strong and loyal base, and you have a lot of big states, big states that are governed by Democrats with authoritarian impulses, yep. uh, big states and big cities. But it is it is interesting to go back to this other point I made that I really want to focus on. The response from the left, unprecedented. Is it? Is it unprecedented? Is this some some leftist conspiracy or the shutdown strictures part of a, a coordinated response with a defined objective? Hmm. 
Well, uh, think about it. Are there other issues on which leftists preach science and practice mysticism? Uh, mentioned it earlier in the week. Uh, what about their ever-shifting arguments, ever-erroneous models, and ever-elusive goalposts about climate warming slash change? What about their commitment to abortion on demand to the point of outside the womb, see Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, in spite of what we know about the stage of development at which a child could live outside the womb? How about their feel-good plastic bag bans now being reversed in places like San Francisco because the cloth NPR tote bag is now a delivery system endangering aging hippie Whole Foods patrons? So there are other examples of what we're seeing here. This is just scaled so massively partly because it's been supported by so many Republicans, including the president. So are there others which they preach science and practice mysticism? Well, there's certainly, we've got lots of examples. Are there other tragic occurrences after which leftist creed core is to curtail individual rights? What about mass shootings and the calls from the left for the limitations on our individual second amendment rights in their aftermath? What about the uh, tragedy of hurt feelings, quote-unquote tragedy? The response from college campuses all the way to New York City, speech codes, fines for uh, using the term illegal alien in a menacing way in New York City, infringements on our First Amendment rights, safe spaces, to borrow from a Dennis Prager documentary, if you will. So there are other tragic occurrences after which the left's move is to curtail individual rights, which we've seen here. Are there precedents for insinuating identitarian politics into the response to a natural disaster? The left has attempted to racialize COVID-19, as we've talked about here, including most recently with uh, our friend Will Riley from Kentucky State University. Right, talking about how it disproportionately affects uh, minorities, particularly African-Americans. Well, as Real, Will Riley pointed out, doing a little bit of uh, regression analysis, once you control for income, it really actually doesn't impact minorities more than whites. It does in the aggregate because, unfortunately, there's a disproportionate share of uh, minorities at the lower ends of the socioeconomic ladder congregated in big cities. Lorded over by Democrats for generations. The majority of black Americans live in 10 states and the biggest cities within those states, like New York, New York, Chicago, Illinois, L.A., California, Atlanta, Georgia. Democrats have run those states for generations, if not centuries in the case of Chicago. So the conversation about uh, the impact of COVID-19, what about the more general conversation about the significantly shorter lifespans of black Americans in addition to their disproportionate vulnerability to COVID-19 and what has been said versus what has been done by those that otherwise enjoy their political support. What about Katrina? Attempting again, attempting to uh, insinuate identitarian politics to racialize. Do we not remember Kanye West? Bush doesn't care about black people during the televised telethon while papering over the performance of uh, the Ray Nagin and Kathleen Blanco, the mayor and the governor. 
What about uh, in Puerto Rico, where we find it wasn't uh, the unwillingness of President Trump to provide disaster relief? It wasn't the inability to scramble resources and even get them to the island territory. We see corruption at the local level and regional level within FEMA as an explanation of why much of the relief the federal government provided was deployed improperly, if at all. Excellent reporting by Cheryl Atkinson to that score, in addition to just the reporting of people being arrested by the federal government for crimes. So America's response to the COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented, but the left's response is not. There's no conspiracy. There's no unique coordination in advance of some master plan. What you're seeing is government-centric, sentimental barbarians going as far as Americans fear will allow them to go. That's what you're saying. And it's uh, exemplified by those that are achieving the most celebrity status because they're in need of the most support from the propagandists in the D.C. press corps that have their back. Cuomo and Murphy and Pritzker and de Blasio and Lightfoot and Whitmer. In the immortal words of Arizona Cardinals Dennis Green, the left, they are who we thought they were. This is Dan Proff. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, I just can't play this clip enough. Joe Biden, in advance of his town hall, video town hall with Hillary Clinton, did some morning interviews from the bowels of his Delaware compound, talking about the concerns he has uh, with respect to America's economic future. Saying this. If, in fact, for example, we solve the problem in the United States of America and you don't solve it in other parts of the world, you know what's going to happen. We're going to have you're going to have travel bans. You're going to not be able to do have have economic intercourse around the world. There's a lot. Look, when America goes alone, when, when America is first, it's America alone. And if it's America alone, I guess that's economic self-pleasure. I don't know. Economic intercourse. Interesting choice of words. It's always interesting. The choices of words that Joe Biden makes. But I I do understand the thinking if it's a government directed economy, then everything that the government does is through force. So economic activity, you would be getting intercoursed a related topic that Joe Biden hasn't addressed, try to tamp down. But it doesn't seem to be going away. And uh, he's getting criticism from the left, not from women, not from the Me Too movement, but from the likes of Peter Beinart, who suggests that. uh, Uh, Senate records of Joe Biden's be released to the public to see if there's anything that may either corroborate or undermine Tara Reid's allegations of sexual assault dating back to 1993. 
Meanwhile, those uh, auditioning to be vice president are flacking for Joe Biden. And for no one is that more true than Stacey Abrams, who is in an unseemly fashion, perhaps a fashion we haven't seen before, almost demanding she be added to the Biden ticket. Here's um, what she had to say in defense of uh, the guy she wants to run with. I believe that women deserve to be heard, and I believe that they need to be listened to. But I also believe that those allegations have to be investigated by credible sources. The New York Times did a deep investigation, and they found that the accusation was not credible. I believe Joe Biden. I believe that he is a person who has demonstrated that his love of family, his love of our community, has been love of made perfectly clear through his work as a congressional leader and as an American leader. I know Joe Biden, and I think that he is telling the truth and that this did not happen. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Scott McKay. He's the publisher of The Hayride and contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, what about uh, what uh, uh, Stacey Abrams had to say on behalf of Joe Biden, explaining that you know women need to be heard, which is you know I've always said, but in this case, I believe Joe Biden because I know Joe Biden. She must have known him for you know days, weeks, even now at this point. I, at least several minutes. Yes. Uh, I think what Stacey Abrams knows is what she wants from Joe Biden, which I want for Stacey Abrams as well, seeing as <laughs> though I want Joe Biden to lose. So I'm perfectly fine with what she said. The fact that it has no bearing whatsoever on the truth is, you know, look, we're talking about Democrats here, so let's let's not hold them to too high a standard, right? Well, that's right. And, and to the underlying uh, point of Tara Reid's allegations, with uh, some corroboration, at least that she has been telling this story to people dating back near to the alleged uh, – the date of the alleged incident, the year of the alleged incident – it doesn't seem to be going away, such that, as I mentioned in the outset, uh, Peter Beinart saying, hey, you know, release Senate records and either clear and see if there's something that clears your name or uh, perhaps implicates you. Well, uh, look, let's be honest. Does anybody really not believe Tara Reid? I mean, I, you know, I, all of these these political statements notwithstanding. I, I mean, who is surprised at the idea that Tara Reid's allegations might be true? I mean, is that, yeah. we've we've seen video evidence of Joe Biden being handsy with people. I mean, it's not difficult to believe that this is a manifestation of something that we already know about this guy. Well, not to mention uh, using phrases like economic intercourse. Uh, that that alone right. is, yeah, is indictable. Exactly. <laughs> how is that practice? It's you know, and it's amazing that you know here's Hillary Clinton who endorses him, and it's like, well, of course you did because this is the kind of thing that you only talk about in the in the you know in the in the ambit of a political thing that you can use on somebody else, but there's never been anybody that was more of a serial sexual abuser than your husband that you still haven't divorced. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, these, these look, these people are about one thing and it's about how much power they can accumulate for themselves. Everything else is 100% secondary. And the question the American people have to answer for themselves is, you know, how much of this are you willing to tolerate? You know, um, I, I mean, I, you know, nobody said that, that Trump was a, a, a perfect gentleman at right. all times. But, you know, at, at least with, with Trump, there's some semblance of, you know, accountability that he's got to, you know, mind his manners to some extent. With these guys, I mean, there's no sanction from the media. There's no accountability. There's no effort to, to uh, you know, keep these guys on the straight and narrow. It's nope, they're Democrats. We're Democrats. 
So they can do whatever they want. We'll cover it up. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, the media. Axios decides that they uh, don't want the strings to show. More with Scott McKay, publisher of The Hayride and contributor to The American Spectator right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Scott McKay. He's the publisher of The Hayride and a contributor to the American Spectator. And um, uh, Scott, uh, you had uh, several media outlets avail themselves of uh, payroll protection program forgivable loans. Seattle Times, Tampa Bay Times, Axios, uh, and Jim Vanderhey published a, a expository explaining how you know, they would be transparent about the $5 million loan they were getting. And this is about keeping their 190 employees employed. And, and they're still going to cover politics and government, but they'll have the disclaimer and they'll still, you know, call it right down the middle, just as you've come to just 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 as you've come to know Axios. Well, now they've decided, uh, apparently because they have alternative means of financing, that they're going to return that loan. No word from the Tampa Bay Times or Seattle Times. But I I, I find that whole business so so wholly inappropriate why that was not rejected in principle at the outset. How can you even feign uh, being a member of the fourth estate, even a fourth estate existing, if it's going to be formally financed by taxpayers? Well, I mean, if you're taking Donald Trump's money, I think you should be giving Donald Trump very favorable coverage, right? That's <laughs> yeah, that's what right. state-run media entails, does it not? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, at this point, with as as bad off as we are economically, um, I mean, I, I what was it? I guess it was Goldman Sachs has now got a, a projection that the second quarter GDP number is going to be off by forty percent, which is uh, you know, a number that really is unfathomable, you know, in the event of anything other than a nuclear war. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, everybody's going to get at least a little desperate based on that. But, you know, I, there is a very serious uh, moral question for or, or ethical question for a media outlet that purports to talk about politics um, you know, taking that money. I mean, I, you know, I, I know it's a, from a business standpoint, it's a really bad, uh, situation. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen newspapers are coming flat out begging for money now. Um, but I, you know, I, I mean, I don't know that it's something you can do as a media outlet to sell your soul to the government that you're supposed to be covering objectively. It, 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 just, precisely. And, and, and I mean, look, here's the deal. One of the, the other things this should remind everybody, you know what these media outlets are? Businesses. And remember, they're in the business of serving their customers just like any other business. So they, they, all of this, uh, this patina of being in the business of truth, they're all Woodward and Bernstein's uncovering wrongdoing on your behalf. They are businesses serving consumers, serving customers. MSNBC is serving its customers. CNN is serving its customers. Axios is serving its customers. But that, but you know, all the the, the whole high mindedness of of truth seeking that we have to hear from the pe- people like Andy Lack at uh, NBC News, uh, really, I think, has been exposed during this time. If you've read this thing that Andy Lack wrote, I guess it was Monday, 
you know, just, I mean, it was one of the most arrogant preening things I've ever read in my life. And he's talking about how NBC news is a purveyor of truth. And it's like, wait a minute, you guys had Brian Williams as the face of your <laughs> nightly broadcast for how long? I mean, this, this guy was a modern day Walter Mitty talking about all the places he had been. And, uh, you know, nobody at NBC ever bothered to rein him in until the whole thing crashed down on him. And it, I really don't care what Andy Lack has to say about, you know, how, how credible his organization is. Although it is interesting because um, it's instructive, right? The the word choices that are sure. used. And and he, he, he says um, the headline of his piece, journalism under attack from coronavirus and the White House. But we're winning. We're winning. If this is a, a competition of some sort. You're winning, meaning what, what What do you win when you win? Oh, you're winning in terms of your effort to defeat Donald Trump and have a new president. You're winning to get your politicians in office and not their politicians. That that's, can only be what he means, can't it? Well, I mean, that that's how most people who aren't just completely dyed-in-the-wool leftists will read that, which is, you know, okay, so now you're a partisan in some, you know, debate, competition, war, whatever, uh, and if I'm not a partisan on your side, I shouldn't pay attention to anything NBC News ever says again. So, you know, just kiss off half the audience and see how that works. Um, and it, just in terms of the reporting on the virus itself and, and, and going back to what Andy Lack said, how about, you know, they have to the walk the line between um, between a, a panic and, uh, and and responsibility between panic and persistence, I think, was the phrase that he used. How are they doing at walking that line between panic and persistence to get to the truth? Well, I mean, I you know, I, I think we, we all know that this thing has been hyped to such unbelievable levels uh, that, you know, I mean, I, I, I saw a headline today or yesterday, last night, and I think it was Apple News that had it, but I'm not sure where it originally came from. Maybe it was an AP story or something. Now the coronavirus has now killed more Americans than the Vietnam War. Right. You know, that Vietnam um, thing, the, the Vietnam thing we've talked about in this show, too, I think it's just an affront to decency to compare uh, killed in action deaths to people who get infected and die. I, I, the, the war metaphor is so unsettling to me. In addition to that, yeah. just the ahistorical press, um, the H3N2 virus. Have they ever heard of that? Uh, it, uh, Vietnam, 1968 pandemic, H3N2 killed a million individuals globally. United States, with a population of 205 million, a third uh, fewer than we have today, the virus killed 100,000 individuals. Nobody's ever heard of it. Right. Nobody's ever heard of it. That was uh, uh, 50 years ago. Uh, or, you know, or everybody talks about 1918, um, the Spanish flu. What about the influenza pandemic of 57? There's no, there's no comparison to it, and there's no comparison to the, the way this is being covered and, and again, the political-slash-governmental response to it. It's remarkable uh, th this is really a moment in time where these historical comp comparisons should uh, leave us shuddering, I think. If you smell the agenda behind why this is being covered the way it's being covered, that's what becomes really unsettling. You know, these guys have shown uh, the American people who they are. You know, they like this. They want the power that this thing gives them. And, you know, they also don't want to go back to normal because then they've got you know, the reckoning that's going to come when people go, you know, I lost my business and it wasn't necessary. And what are you going to do about it? Um, you know, nobody wants to deal with that. Not Bill de Blasio, not Andrew Cuomo, not Pritzker in, in, in Illinois, not John Bell Edwards here. 
you know, nobody wants to go back to normal and have people asking rude questions about what they've done. And so, you know, you're going to have to fight to get your life back from these people. He is Scott McKay, publisher of The Hayride, contributor to The American Spectator. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, just following on our discussion with Scott McKay about the D.C. press corps. Look, the bar is low. You know, the expectations are very low with respect to any sort of textured understanding and thus textured reporting on anything. Remember, um, the standard for the D.C. press corps is Brian Williams speaking to a member of the New York Times editorial board and both of them believing that uh, Michael Bloomberg's $500 million that he spent in his presidential campaign, which actually turned out to be a billion. But anyway, $500 million when they were discussing it meant that he could have given every American $1 million. That's their sort of analytical capacity, which is to say it's non-existent. And uh, thus Holman Jenkins uh, tries again. This is more for non-members of the media to properly contextualize what they hear from the media, particularly in anything math or science related or business related, for that matter. A lot of categories should be off limits. Please, if you're a journalist reporting on COVID-19 and you can't understand flatten the curve as a multivariate proposition, leave the profession. They won't, but it's good. <laughs> he writes, you are what economists call a negative marginal product employee. In other words, your non-participation would add value. Your participation subtracts it. And why he's saying that is because of the railing against Sweden's model and suggesting Sweden is an example of failure. See, see don't be Sweden. Uh, let me explain again. When you do more social distancing, you get less transmission. When you do less, you get more transmission. Almost all countries are pursuing a more or less goal, not a reduced to zero goal. Sweden expects a higher curve, but in line with its hospital co- capacity. Sweden's neighbors are not avoiding the same deaths with their stronger mandates. They're delaying them to the detriment of other values. Right. Uh, Say this again and again, but it doesn't matter. They won't provide that context. And uh, Holman Jacobs says, you know, sans a deus ex machina that uh, provides a widely uh, available and effective uh, vaccine, um, as Swedish epidemiologist Johan Gusecki said, come to me next May. Come to me next day and see where Sweden is after a year of this, uh, where Sweden is with terms of infections and deaths as compared to its uh, Nordic neighbors or the rest of the Western world. As Sweden is reporting this week, they believe they're approaching herd immunity. I just love I just go back and get Helman Jenkins reporters. You are negative marginal product employees. Oh, that's delightful. Uh, maybe I'm too much of an economics geek, but that's OK. Uh, hey, uh, while you are shut down, if you were in one of these states that uh, refuses to uh, embrace risk at all, science generally, uh, there's something you should watch. Check out No Safe Spaces. This is the documentary, number one political documentary of 2019, 99 percent audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That was produced by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla that tackles the attack on free speech on college campuses, social media platforms in Hollywood. 
Uh, no Safe Spaces is available to stream only at nosafespaces.com. And for my listeners, Dan Prof Show listeners, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off streaming No Safe Spaces. And you can do so as many times as you want until May 31. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was on with Sean Hannity last night. He also spent time with the president, but uh, I'm referencing uh, his uh, interview with Sean Hannity. Very interesting. Very interesting uh, how Florida is doing compared to, say, Illinois after... Lori Lightfoot, triple threat, was uh, just beside herself that uh, the beaches in Florida would be reopened last week when they were. God help us. Here's uh, Governor DeSantis uh, explaining why Florida has been so successful where a few other states have and certainly more successful than every state has, every state with any significant outbreak. And that is protecting the most of the most vulnerable, protecting the most vulnerable among that category people in long-term care facilities. We knew where the threat was and we knew where the vulnerabilities were. And so when you're talking about putting out 7 million masks and gloves and face shields, making sure that we have teams going there to try to see where the infections are coming from, try to work on keeping those at bay, sending National Guard units in to do spot testing in those facilities, that is all a recognition that if the virus gets into those facilities, it can run rampant. And so we've worked really hard to do that. I got a great secretary for healthcare administration, Mary Mayhew, which is really spearheaded. She was fighting the whole time. She wouldn't let a hospital put a sick COVID patient back in a nursing home. She said, you guys got to keep these folks because then they'll infect the rest of the nursing home. So it's a very difficult problem. But I think because we were proactive, uh, we've had much better results and a much lower death rate than we otherwise would. The fatality rate in Florida among long-term care residents, 1.2%. In New Jersey, 23%. In New York, 18%. In Massachusetts, 18 percent. In Connecticut, 11 percent. In Louisiana, 10 percent. In Pennsylvania, 7 percent. In Colorado, another state that, unbeknownst to uh, the D.C. press corps, has also reopened with the Democrat governor, 4 percent. Um, and, and remember, I'm talking about just the fatality rate as a percentage of the overall number of residents in these long-term care facilities. And, of course, Florida has many more than most of those states. The percentage of deaths that are accounted for by residents of long-term care facilities, 35% of all deaths in Illinois, more than 50% of all deaths in Massachusetts, uh, more than 20% nationally, and I suggest that's probably a low number, but just take it as is, and 1.2% fatality rate among that very vulnerable population in Florida. And he didn't have to arrest fathers for playing t-ball in a park with daughters. And he didn't have to stop people from playing golf or otherwise enjoying the outside in the Sunshine State. Remarkable. He he tread lightly on people's rights and was still able to protect the most vulnerable. For more on this, the civil rights uh, and liberties piece of it, 
Pleased to be joined again by our friend Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, contributing editor at National Review, author of Ball of Collusion, bestseller, Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You know, when you were saying all that, I was mindful of, uh, you know, I have friends down in Florida, and what they've been astonished by is the difference in the perception of DeSantis in the state where he's very popular and was thought to be doing the right thing across the board versus nationally, particularly the take on the uh, by the national media in the Northeast. It's like night and day. But he, I agree with you. He's done a superb job. It's funny, too. Ron DeSantis has done a good job, and he is a whipping boy for the D.C. press corps. The worst outbreak in the country is New York State, and Andrew Cuomo is America's governor. Yeah, right. Yeah, just don't let him run your uh, health care facility for the elderly. That's probably not a great idea. You know, look, it's, uh, it's the media. It's who they are. It's the same media that doesn't ask Joe Biden about the uh, Tara Reid uh, question. They're just a... Uh, they're an adjunct of the Democratic Party, and it is what it is, and you just have to sort of accept it and uh, roll with it because it's not going to change. Soldier on, right. So uh, with respect to um, uh, Attorney General Barr, speaking of the media's interpretation of some remarks he's given and instruction he's given over the last week or so about keep an eye, an eye out for obvious abuses of uh, people's mm-hmm. constitutional rights by state and local governments, this is is fascinating. All these uh, ACLU members are receiving this as some sort of authoritarian intrusion by the attorney general to protect constitutional rights at the local level. I, I, it's such a mind bender. Yeah. You'd almost think that the people of the United States were the sovereign rather than these governors. You know, Crazy talk. Um, yeah. I, I, the craziest of the crazy talk. And in all seriousness, I think the most trenchant thing he says, because I, I noticed that when people hear this, they say, oh, yeah, that's right. But his point was that it's not your burden to show that your job is essential versus non-essential. It's their burden, that is the state's burden, to show that your job can't be operated safely under any conditions or safety restrictions. This is like a two-part test that asks, do they have a compelling interest in regulating and are they using the least restrictive means to accomplish that. Let's give them the first one because everybody understands that the spread of an infectious disease is uh, preventing it is a compelling government interest. They still have to regulate when they're regulating your fundamental rights, whether it's, you know, your right to make a living, your property, association, free exercise of religion and the like. Uh, They have to regulate with the least restrictive means that allows them to attempt to accomplish their legitimate aim, but at the same time understands that your that is the American people are the sovereign. Government is created to protect their rights, not to restrict them, and they have to try to accomplish their objective with the maximum amount of indulgence to your fundamental rights. You don't have to accommodate your rights to them. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Uh, as a matter of what the presumptions are. The General Flynn matter, the president tweeted out recently that he's considering a, a full pardon of General Flynn, uh, may not be necessary, according to uh, reports out earlier in this week, suggesting that uh, new filings by uh, federal prosecutors uh, contain exculpatory evidence with respect to General Flynn. Yeah, I, I think the thing with the pardon is Flynn would probably, you know, as a last resort, obviously, I think they'd take it, but... Uh, Flynn would rather be exonerated, exonerated yeah. by the 
by the prosecutors, by the Justice Department, then get a pardon. And um, there were pretty explosive revelations, uh, assuming that um, Sidney Powell, who's really been persistent on this for months, if she summarized them correctly in the motion that she filed on Friday, and I, I, I don't mean to suggest she didn't, I don't think there's any reason to think she didn't, there's indication that the Justice Department had exculpatory evidence that they didn't turn over uh, to the first set of lawyers for uh, General Flynn. That first set of lawyers for General Flynn didn't do a particularly good job uh, representing him, and that there may have been a secret deal um, where uh, you know Flynn's camp all along has said that the reason he pled guilty, even though he says he isn't guilty, uh, and the agents who interviewed him didn't think he lied to them, was because the Mueller team threatened to prosecute his son if he didn't plead guilty. There's now a paper trail that shows that there was uh, a deal that the Justice Department didn't want to write into the – or that the Mueller team didn't want to write into the plea agreement that if Flynn pled guilty, his son would not be prosecuted. And if that happened, that's a big problem because under federal law, when you plead guilty, the entirety of the understandings that go to the plea have to be disclosed to the court that is taking the plea. So that's one big problem. And secondly, the only rational reason to keep that kind of a commitment under wraps would be that they plan to use Flynn as a witness, but not disclose that that commitment existed, which would be a violation of their discovery obligations in other cases. So it's uh, if that happened, it's a real serious bit of misconduct. In addition to the possibility if that happened, Flynn would be exonerated. Uh, this is the question that everybody wants to know. Uh, you know, anytime anything related to the Mueller investigation comes up, what will be the consequences for the bad actors in this instance, if there are bad actors? Yeah, and I think the only thing that we can say about that at the moment is that this is being looked at very seriously as a criminal investigation. Attorney General Barr has obviously brought John Durham in from outside the Beltway. He's the U.S. attorney in Connecticut to look at it. He's treating it as a criminal investigation in connection with Flynn he brought in Jeff Jensen, another fine U.S. attorney uh, from outside Washington, to look at that case. And already we're seeing uh, the results of that in these very, very late in the day disclosures we're seeing. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency, which persists, I should add. Andy McCarthy, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Appreciate it. Stay safe. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And I want to pick up on something that uh, I discussed last hour as well as uh, something discussed in part with uh, NRO's Andy McCarthy. And that's about uh, the left reacting to the coronavirus outbreak, the COVID-19 pandemic, in a way that is not unprecedented. And it's also not a conspiracy. It's just Leninists doing what Leninists do. 
So just starting with DeSantis, and this is why Ron DeSantis presented such a threat to them. Again, Ron DeSantis's foresight and Ron DeSantis's significantly better results in terms of caring for the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable people in long term care facilities, of which Florida has a lot. And the fatality rates, you know, a infinitesimal fraction of the fatality rate in New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts, Connecticut, as I mentioned, where all of these wonderful Democrat governors are doing such a masterful job, at least according to the press. And DeSantis was with Trump yesterday, too. And DeSantis is sort of a better version of Trump. He has all the instincts of being on offense, but he's a better communicator, more succinct communicator uh, on the topic. You know, it's not detracting against Trump, really. It's just saying DeSantis is very good and uh, he's done a very good job in Florida, as Andy McCarthy suggested, as President Trump has suggested. And he did a very good job of pounding back against the media that has treated him so unfairly from the outset because they didn't like the fact that he didn't go along with the crowd and do an immediate hammer down of the state of Florida. And Governor DeSantis, you did face quite a bit of criticism for not closing your state as soon as some did. Uh, There's yeah, a lot of attention. What have the results been? You look at some of the most draconian orders that have been issued in some of these states and compare Florida in terms of our hospitalizations per 100,000, in terms of our fatalities per 100,000. I mean, you go from D.C., Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, you name it. Florida's done better. And I'm not criticizing those states, but everyone in the media was saying Florida was going to be like New York or Italy. And that has not happened because we understood we have a big, diverse state. We understood the outbreak was not uniform throughout the state. And we had a tailored and measured approach that not only helped our numbers be way below what anyone predicted, but also did less damage to our state going forward. I had construction going on, the road projects, but we did it in a safe way. And we did it, I think, in a way that is probably more sustainable um, over the long term. So I think people can go back and look at all the criticism and then look now and nobody predicted that Florida would. We have challenges. This is not an easy situation. We've had people in the hospital, but I am now in a situation where I have less than 500 people at a state of 22 million on ventilators as of last night. And I have 6,000 in 500 ventilators that are sitting idle unused throughout the state of Florida. Now compare that to what Roy Cooper is doing in North Carolina, where he extended the shutdown to May 8th. Uh, John Nolte writing about this. He lives in North Carolina at Breitbart.com. Throughout our entire state, there have only been 8,800 confirmed coronavirus cases, 305 deaths. Our state hospitals must look awfully barren with only 451 people hospitalized. Uh, while all elective procedures and surgeries have been canceled. The worst hotspot is Mecklenburg County, home of Charlotte, but that urban area saw only 1,482 cases and 41 deaths. So what is the point of continuing the lockdowns? Isn't the whole point of the lockdown, writes Nolte, to ensure our health care system doesn't crash? So where is North Carolina? Where in North Carolina, he writes, is there any fear of the health care system crashing? I mean, other than from bankruptcy, because the hospitals are all empty due to the outlawing of elective procedures. Um, And he makes the point uh, about North Carolina that I've made about Illinois. Fine. You want to treat Chicago differently than the rest of the state? Chicago Metro? Do it. And he writes, okay, maybe Charlotte and Raleigh you want to treat differently? Fine. 
But why the outlying counties? Why Western North Carolina, for example, where Nolte lives uh, and the four counties surrounding him where there have been exactly 63 cases and zero deaths? Also, in each one of those counties, there is a hospital. Four counties, four hospitals, 63 cases, not one death. Nothing is going to crash here, he said. But Roy Cooper's Democrat. Got to toe the party line. Because uh, this panic-demic, the aspect of the pandemic, the panic-demic, is an opportunity. And you know who reminded us, again, in a way only she can? Hillary Clinton yesterday during her uh, endorsement uh, love fest with uh, Mr. Economic Intercourse. Hillary Clinton used the opportunity to make uh, another call, renewed call for the formal government takeover of the healthcare system. But this is also a really high stakes election and every form of healthcare should continue to be available, including uh, reproductive healthcare for every woman uh, in this country. Uh, and then it needs to be part of a much larger system that eventually and quickly, I hope, gets us to universal health care. So uh, I, I can uh, only uh, say amen to everything you're saying, but also to, again, enlist people that this would be a terrible crisis to waste, as the old saying goes. We've mm-hmm. learned a lot about what our absolute uh, frailties are in our country when it comes to health justice and economic justice. So, you know, let's be resolved that we're going to solve those once you're elected president. Yeah. As the old saying goes, from Clinton East to Tiny Dancer, uh, a.k.a. Rahm Emanuel, this is the opportunity to, and, and she understands that the opportunity is real because of the great fear-mongering job the D.C. press corps and these politicians have done. Uh, USA Today Suffolk poll finds that in response to a, a question that was asked after 9-11, too, about uh, whether or not the federal government should be doing more, Fifty percent say the government, federal government should be doing more. Forty percent say it's trying to do too much. USA Today reports that is the strongest endorsement for government doing more since Gallup began to ask the question in 1992. Call that the coronavirus effect. Just five months ago in September of uh, 2019, a little bit more than five months ago, Americans by 49, 47 were inclined to say that the government was doing too much. The only time support for a bigger government was close to the current level was in the aftermath of 9-11, when more activism was back 50 to 41. Uh, USA Today finds it 50-40. Right. What did we say yesterday about uh, post-Katrina, the post-Katrina world? The the fear of, of opening up and bad things happen leads to extreme caution, leads to overreach, leads to a permanently expanded government. Now, that can be uh, unintentional because of risk aversion and short-term political expediency, or it can be the product of a, a more grand design to subsume whole pieces of the economy, which Hillary Clinton has been promoting since the early 90s, hasn't she? Well, I mean, all her life, but in a national public way that people were uh, debating since uh, Bill Clinton found his way to the White House. Isn't that right?
The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, we'll get right to our next guest. I originally uh, was interested in him because of this, this very interesting analysis he did about the effectiveness of a state's response to COVID-19 uh, against the speed of the response. And we mentioned it, yeah, mentioned it in passing. But he's also got some interesting research with respect to the uh, this uh, controversy about uh essentially counting the dead. Um, I hate to be ghoulish about it, but uh, it's a controversy. It's something that has to be discussed. Unfortunately, it has to be discussed in macro in a macro way because policies are being made at the macro level based on these numbers in part. He is Demeter Toshkoff. He's an associate professor at the Institute of Public Administration at uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. I hope I pronounced that right. Demeter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so let's start with um, the uh, question of whether it makes sense. I mean, I guess this is one of those things, according to your research, where all cliches are true. It's better to measure twice and cut once. Um, the uh, f- the speed of policy response from a particular government versus the effectiveness of that response. Um, yeah. So uh, the finding that we have in this preliminary research is that at least in Europe, so we covered 31 countries in Europe, member states of the European Union, and a couple more, then the faster they impose restrictions on movement and uh, social distancing, then this had a big impact on the number of cases that they registered and the number of deaths they had a month down the line. And of course, speed is not quality of policy response, but in this particular case, the faster they acted, had, uh, the, 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 the better they did in managing the pandemic down the road. Um, you, uh, so, so that's what you mean when you uh, say, in terms of provisional answers, government effectiveness is strongly negatively correlated with the speed of the policy response? Yeah, so in this part of the research, what we try to explain is the variation with which the governments across Europe impose these restrictions on movement, closing down the schools and national lockdowns and all that. And then there is a very counterintuitive relationship there because it seems that governments that in general we regard as more efficient, having higher capacity, like the Western European governments in uh, the Netherlands, Sweden, the United Kingdom, they seemed to take more time before they decided to close down the schools and to impose lockdowns. And in the case of Sweden, they didn't close down the schools at all. So uh, it's an interesting negative correlation in which the more capacity the government has, the slower it was with imposing these measures. Well, bec- so uh, then, of course, we ask, yeah. why, why would that be? And then one possible explanation is that the, the less efficient governments, they knew they don't have a lot of hospital capacity as well. So they just tried to prevent the virus starting in the first place because they had very, very little capacity to manage the consequences. While the richer countries with more efficient governments, they just took more time to evaluate the evidence, listen to experts with the knowledge that if things get uh, worse, they have at least some capacity to handle the consequences. 
Right. And so this is the difference between, say, uh, Eastern European countries that have less capacity but have better stats right now because of the speed of their response exactly. as compared to, say, a Sweden. But the, the other uh, one of the other variables I suggest would be, um, you know, the balancing, the consideration for balancing and how do we protect individual rights and respect uh, the freedoms that our citizens enjoy while also moving in the direction of public safety. And so sometimes that takes uh uh, the use of a scalpel rather than a meat axe. Yeah, um, uh, exactly. So one of the other relationships we find is uh, between the country-level interpersonal trust, the average trust that people have in their governments, but also in other people living in their countries. And then again, in countries in which interpersonal trust is higher and trust in government is higher, they reacted slow to impose restrictions. And to some extent, this can be explained by the fact that in countries where social trust is very high, these countries can rely on self-regulation by the citizens. So this has been an argument made in Sweden that didn't impose a lockdown because it relies on its people to follow recommendations by the government. So the government doesn't have to be so heavy-handed. While in Eastern Europe, I mean, these countries have uh, a legacy of authoritarian rule, so they were relatively quick to jump to more restrictive measures. But then this needs to be taken in the context of actually the countries that had more restrictive measures doing better. So it might be that the countries with higher trust, more freedoms, um, they were more reluctant to impose restrictive measures. But it seems that it didn't work so well in the, in the case of the pandemic. I mean, we can look oh, at oh, Sweden, which is yeah. quite a few cases, the UK as well. Well, when we come back, I want to address the Swedish approach as well as the controversy surrounding how we count COVID-19 deaths and assess its lethality. More with Demeter Toshkov, Associate Professor at the Institute of Public Administration at Leiden University, next. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. We're back with Demeter Toshkov. He's an associate professor at the Institute of Public Administration at Leiden University. And I want to go back to uh, what's happening in Sweden. Two things with respect to Sweden. One, Sweden sort of in the middle of the pack in uh, Europe, and including compared to those that went full shutdown when Sweden did not. So, I mean, Sweden is doing better than the Netherlands, for example, with respect to uh, deaths per million right now. Uh, In addition to that, You have this snapshot in time as uh, the former Swedish epidemiologist, the the state epidemiologist, uh, Johan Gusecki, said in a recent interview, talk to me in a year. You know, these things don't uh, exhaust themselves in a matter of a couple of months. Talk to me in a year. And he predicts, as we've seen, frankly, with other viral outbreaks, that the difference between, say, Sweden and Norway, when you adjust for variables like the size of and the population in nursing homes, and the percentage of people living alone, as well as um, per capita, of course, 
that uh, you won't see a statistically significant difference. And there's uh, some suggestions already that that's true, even if in, in, in comparisons between Sweden and Norway. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be nothing is uh, impossible, but I was just comparing the numbers between Sweden and Denmark, which in the beginning of the pandemic had a very, very similar trajectory. So they had a similar number of cases and deaths. And then Denmark was one of the countries that was the first to impose very restrictive measures, and then they were very strongly enforced, while we know Sweden did not do that. And looking right now, Sweden has more than 2,000 deaths, and Denmark has less than 500. So I think at least this comparison speaks in favor of the restrictive measures. Sweden is reporting that they believe they're coming close to achieving herd immunity. Uh, there's a, an antibody study out of the uh, Wasaw region in France that found an infection rate of 25%, which, if true for France as a whole, would reduce their lethality rate to a 0.13%. So, I mean, I, I, I could see the point snapshot in time uh, going in both directions, but that includes, you know, what exactly the levels of infection are in various countries. So uh, we, we should be uh, humble in sort of the sweeping generalizations we're going to make about who did what better in this moment. Oh, absolutely. I, I could totally agree with that. I think it's way too early given the uncertainties in the number of uh, infected people, the people who have gotten the disease and they have recovered, and the people who have died from the disease. It's just way too early to make categorical judgments about what worked and what didn't work. And um, I, I mean, our, our research is focused on what predicts the government's responses as such, and uh, then the effectiveness of the responses is this kind of a side issue for the moment. And then for predicting the, the government's responses, it seems that there's some quite clear patterns right now. Uh, I wanted to get um, your um, to, to your other research too. You looked at the effects of COVID nineteen on mortality. This is uh, becoming a uh, uh, increasingly hot topic, and and you're not the only one studying this. There's a, a, a study that was led by a Yale epidemiologist as well, uh, with respect to classifying deaths as COVID nineteen deaths. This is becoming an argument not only because it can drive compensation from say federal to state governments in this country. Uh, but also because it's driving policy. Everybody and uh, abetted, aided and abetted by the media looks at the ticker and the number of deaths and makes some sort of uh, instinctive guess about what that means in terms of where we're at in combating the spread. Yeah, um, I, I, I think looking comparatively at that, it, it's by now undeniable that the number that countries have as an officially registered number that is directly deaths directly caused by uh, the virus, it's underestimated. Quite a few media outlets have also compiled the data for a number of countries like the Netherlands and Italy and uh, England, France, and then it seems Belgium as well. It seems that almost everywhere, if you look at excess mortality over time, so this is just a comparison of what we would have expected based on prior trends on the average of the previous years or on some statistical model, and then what happens this year, it seems quite clear that since March, excess mortality is way higher. And not only that, but it's way higher than the, officially number, uh, the official numbers of deaths that have been attributed by the government to, to the coronavirus. So the implication is that a lot of this excess mortality is deaths from the virus that have not been counted. And in some cases, this is 
more than half, well, actually more than the, the number of official cases. So half the excess mortality is unaccounted for, with the implication that the death rate from the virus is way higher than, it, than we currently know. So countries differ in the extent of excess mortality. So in France, almost the entire number can be explained, can be accounted for by the official, officially registered death, while in the Netherlands, it, uh, almost half this number can be explained by what officially counts as death from the, from the virus. And then, as you say, these numbers are quite important for, for policymaking. So um, it would be nice to get those right. But um, I think even countries with very good statistical infrastructure are struggling with that right now. Yeah, it, it, countries uh, with good, I, I, th- I don't know if you said with or without good statistical infrastructure are struggling. I think uh, countries with good statistical infrastructure like America are struggling because while uh, Professor Weinberger at Yale suggests that uh, what you're suggesting generally that um, the numbers are underreported because of the that excess death number. He also uh, has a caveat, according to the Washington Post report on his research. He says the excess deaths are not necessarily attributable directly to covid-19, not necessarily. So that connotes some uncertainty. And I appreciate anything resembling uncertainty coming from academia because it seems to be in short supply, even where it's warranted these days. Um, and in addition to that, we've seen some, uh, you know, sort of unusual movement of numbers, including around the CDC's reporting of flu-related deaths, the, the customary seasonal flu-related deaths. So th- this is very much a debate in, in this country. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. And um, it, I mean, these are, these, are, these are very hard numbers to collect in the first place, but also there are definitional issues because... Um, what counts as directly attributed deaths to COVID is not the same as that that uh, might be indirectly uh, influenced by the disease. For example, if people don't go to the hospital because they fear they might get infected from the from the coronavirus and then they die from other causes, these indirectly might be related to the pandemic as well. So it really depends how we how we define these effects and impacts, and then also how we try to measure that. Yeah. So, so there are huge yeah. uncertainties. I think these are. Uh, this is quite clear, but also, at least in the case of the, the European countries that I know, these uncertainties point to they point to much higher impact than the number of officially registered cases rather than the other way around. Demeter Toshkov, associate professor of the Institute of Public Administration at Leiden University in the Netherlands. Uh, professor Toshkov, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much for having me. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, you know what time it is. Sprockets, Sprockets, Best German Television presents Sprockets. Meet your host, Dieter. Welcome to Sprockets. I am your host, Dieter. Yes, on a special edition of Sprockets, yep, I, I find stories, if you haven't figured it out, where I can play clips from old bits or shows that I like, and so I've just done it here. Thank you, Mike Myers. A group of physicians in Germany deciding to protest the shortage of personal protective equipment, PPE, 
uh, against the COVID-19 infection, of course, uh, are protesting nude. The group calls itself uh, or calls its protest uh, Blanca Bendikin. I think I'll apologize for my German, which translates as Naked Concerns. Uh, Naked Concerns, actually the name of my high school band, Naked Eyes cover band. And uh, I think there's going to be something always left to remind us about this uh, protest by the German medical professionals. Uh, I love some of the comments though about this protest. Who cares? Germans get naked when the wind blows. Would you like to touch my monkey? Oh, yes. Come, touch him. Touch him. Liebe meine Abschminke, tisch meine Abschminke, love him, touch him. Thank you. Yes, uh, all right. Well, for uh, those who have uh, more mature tastes when it comes to consuming uh, television, uh, I got a better idea for you than watching old skits from Mike Myers and SNL. And it comes to us from investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, and throughout the world to search for answers to one very important question. Did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really happen? The result of his investigation? Uh, Monumental. Right now, you can watch the series Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. And when I say other movies, I mean there are three different films in this series, so it's a limited series. Uh, Exodus is one of them. The Moses Controversy and the Red Sea Miracle. Uh, and again, this would this uh, series includes a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson, featuring our own Dennis Prager of NoSafeSpaces.com fame, Eric Metaxas, also a friend of the show, and Anne Graham Lotz. And I'm sure she would be a friend of the show if we had her on or when we have her on. Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and other stories in this series. Go to PatternsOfEvidence.com. That's PatternsOfEvidence.com, a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of Exodus is, in fact, true. Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, as well as the Moses Controversy and the Red Sea Miracle. You can watch them all at PatternsOfEvidence.com. That's PatternsOfEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us on another installment of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.